Hello there and welcome this week to Talking Flutes with me, Jean-Paul Wright. Instead of taking a summer break, today and for the next few weeks, we're going to be taking the opportunity to look back at some of our favourite pods, a few of which are quite old and certainly quite a long way back in our catalogue for many to find. But before we start, a big shout out to our fabulous Talking Flutes podcast sponsor for this and the past 224 pods. Yes, they've been with us ever since we started. Based just outside of London, TJ Flutes. So please show them some flute love by following them on Instagram at TJ Flutes or Facebook at Trevor James Flutes. This week, and covering two podcasts in one, recorded in 2020 with Dr. Roloff Joe Stamayer in conversation with his mum. Yes, the one and only Claire herself. During the next 60 minutes, they cover areas such as burnout, creating self-belief and daring to dream. But Claire begins the podcast by asking the question, how do we cope mentally with the pressures and demands that life and flute playing brings? It doesn't matter whether you are an enthusiastic amateur, top professional or a student. We all at some point will have high and low points and it's how we deal with these times and events that affects our overall outcome. My memories from very soon after I started playing to a few years after I qualified were littered with the feelings of rejection after exams or auditions, sometimes recitals. In my mind, I either succeeded or I failed. That is, I didn't pass the audition or didn't achieve a high enough score. I would always have a day or two of total dejection and then would pick myself up and start all over again. I thought it would be good to chat to an expert in the field. And so I'm delighted to have with me today psychiatrist Dr. Rulof Joe Stammeyer, who also happens to be my son. So, Joe, I thought you'd be able to give us all a balanced view on how to cope when players are struggling mentally to succeed and achieve beginning maybe with an overview and then becoming more flute-specific. Yeah, absolutely. Um, mental health is a, a topic that we've, I hope, we've all become much more aware of recently. Good mental health is something that's very easy to recognise. It's our, what should really be a, a common state of being for most of us when we're feeling well-adjusted, balanced, able to focus on work. Um, but it's by far and away not the default state for a lot of people, especially when they're in a high-stress profession like professional performance, or even from a, an amateur or hobbyist perspective where you may find your mental health struggling when the rewards or the gains that you're hoping to find from something which you want to enjoy aren't quite being met by your by your day-to-day -day activities. I think it's really important, first of all, to be able to recognise in yourself when your mental health is struggling and often for most people it might not be an obvious feeling of I'm feeling low, I'm feeling depressed, I'm feeling stressed and, and recognising in yourself thoughts which might signal to you that your self-esteem or your mood is struggling. It might be that your sleep is the first thing that starts to go. Most people that struggle with depression will recognise that they wake up much earlier than they intend to or even that they struggle to get to sleep at night. It might be that your appetite has been reduced. It may be that you find yourself less able to cope with smaller stresses on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, or even that things that you used to enjoy, whether flute playing or not, aren't bringing you the same degree of enjoyment that they used to. So what's key is recognising those moments and being able to say to yourself uh, that you're not feeling great at the moment, that, you're, that your mental health is struggling a little bit, whether that's in a, a minor way or a, or a more serious way, and then being able to do something about it. Okay, so we've got, let's think about um, amateurs and maybe more serious students or professionals. Um, as solo instrumentalists, we're always practising alone. It's a very solitary existent, and it's very easy to become very self-critical. So I suppose we need to try and retain the balance and the focus when we're on our own for all this time? Hmm. I suppose the, the same advice is going to be useful to people who are both performing at a professional level and an amateur level, because mental health struggles will affect us all, and often the degree to which we're affected doesn't necessarily seem to reflect the 
the degree of the injury which we might be inflicted, whether that's a, a stressful stimulus or, or even a, an illness. I think if you're spending most of your time on your own uh, in a practicing sense, and if most of the stress is coming from being on your own, it might be important to realize when that environment is no longer becoming helpful. Okay, so you, you might recognize then that practice isn't being helpful. I suppose when you might be feeling worse and playing worse. And then what should you do? Create some distance? I think it's important to make sure that you have a some way of escaping harmful cycles. So I imagine most people would be incredibly familiar with the scenario of you'll be practicing, you'll hit a bad note or a, a bad phrase, you'll recognise that it's not the right way to play that passage, you'll go back to the beginning again, you might hit another bad note or even the same one again and again, and the pattern will repeat in a way which you have a constant self-narrative that you're not a good player, I can't play this piece, I can't play this passage, and you might end up catastrophizing into, you know, really quite alarming thoughts like, oh, I can't play the flute at all, you know, I should give up now, and most of the time I I'd hope that most of us would be able to recognise that that's not a thought that's really representative of, of what's going on. But in those kind of moments, I think it would be important to maybe take a step back, whether that's sorted with five minutes of put the flute down, go for a go for a walk, go for a cup of tea, or if this is something which you're finding is more and more pervasive, getting out of the space where you're practising, going out and doing something that normally brings you enjoyment actually going and, and seeking an activity separate from practice which can bring your mood back to a place where you're feeling more stable settled well and balanced whereby when you do go back to the flute that practice is actually useful and beneficial as opposed to practicing in a in a poor state of mind where it's not only going to make you feel worse but it's not going to do anything for your playing either okay so sort of to sum up then if you if you're feeling that things aren't going well you can create distance between your practice uh, and maybe go for a walk, have a cup of tea, uh, go and do a act, sporting activity, something that, that you know brings you joy. What about mindfulness? Well, I think when we... We've actually touched upon what's, what's quite an important theme. So mindfulness has become incredibly popular recently, which, which I think is a, a brilliant thing. Mindfulness is incredibly useful. But it's the evidence base for mindfulness is, is actually surprisingly much more narrow than you might think. Mindfulness is absolutely fantastic at preventing relapse. So in people who are in a good state of mind, who are feeling well and who are feeling balanced, mindfulness is a brilliant technique to learn because it is a skill, mindfulness. It's not a, uh, an intervention. It's a, it's a skill which you learn through practice. So when you're feeling well... The ability to practice mindfulness will help you to stay well and will help you help to reduce the, the number of times that you might find yourself feeling low or find yourself having a, a relapse in your mental health. One of the problems is, is when we are feeling low, when we're feeling bad or even when we're in crisis, mindfulness is not actually helpful. Focusing on your own thoughts and feelings and emotions is not really a great experience when all of those thoughts, feelings and emotions are self-critical, negative, bad. And you can actually even worsen your mental health if you try to engage deeply in mindfulness while you're in a state of crisis. Which is why when I talk about things that you can do to help yourself in those moments of practice when you're feeling self-critical, what I'm actually talking about are techniques based on something called behavioural activation which is finding an activity or doing something, planning uh, a set thing which can get you away from what is currently being a negative stimulus and into something which will bring you back into a more positive frame of mind. OK, so post-rejection is not a good time for mindfulness and you need to have a plan of activities to distract you when negative attitudes might arise. Yeah, I suppose it might be a good way to frame it as it being important to have a repertoire of helpful things to do, things that you know will make you feel better when you're in that incredibly negative space. You, you, I, mean, I imagine you'll probably have some feedback from people listening who say that mindfulness is always helpful to me when I'm in a bad space, and, and there may well be people for whom that is a useful technique for them. But if I'm 
giving sort of broad advice to the majority of people in that immediate post-rejection negative space, mindfulness may actually serve to make you feel slightly worse. Yeah, that's really interesting. I never even thought about that. So that's something I'm going to certainly take on board myself. So probably then when you're feeling well, that's the time to come up with some good behavioural activities about what you like to do, like as I said, walking or watching a film or some sporting activity, so that when you're in a low place, you can go to those places. Absolutely. When you're in a, a low place, it's going to be a massive struggle to think of things which make you happy because you're not going to be in the sort of frame of mind where you'll be able to recognise the enjoyment that those activities would bring you. It's important when we think in a behavioural activation framework to list four key categories in, in the activities that you might plan for yourself. Uh, and I'd list them as achievement. So how much of a sense of achievement does this activity give me? And for some people that might be cleaning the kitchen. That might make you feel like you've ticked a box, that you've done something, that you've achieved something from the day. Uh, another important category is closeness. How close does that make me feel to other people? How connected does this make me feel to my friends, my family, my social circle? The third would be how enjoyable is this activity? How much innate joy does this bring me? And it doesn't matter what the activity is. It doesn't matter what it's doing or how much it's ticking any other boxes, but how genuinely happy does doing this make you feel when you're in a good space? And the fourth category is importance, which can be a little bit of a, an arbitrary or difficult thing to assign, but it is very subjective. How important is this activity to you? How grand is this in or how important is this in the grand scheme of things for, for you to have achieved um, so achievement closeness enjoyable important and an activity doesn't have to tick all four of those boxes but it should focus on at least one and ideally more and on the topic of a sporting activity that is the the one thing I'd, I'd definitely say to anyone if you don't currently have a sport or a type of exercise, whether that is as simple as a walk that you like doing around your house or a professional sport that you play with a team, definitely go out and pick one up. Definitely find a sport because exercise is a great way to, to boost your mood. Absolutely. So and what about building up a support network? So I'm thinking about a lot of people listening will have teachers, but if you haven't got a teacher, maybe your peers, people, someone to talk to. So you have some sort of support network um, to help you in, in sort of times of need. As a mental health professional, one of the most reassuring things uh, nowadays is how open people are uh, talking with mental health. But I think it's important to recognise that there is still a certain degree of stigma about talking about your mental health and talking about your mood, which might seem to some people like a, a challenge to building a support network for that. But I would still definitely encourage people to try talking to close friends, support networks, teachers, family even, if you're having a, a bad time. And it doesn't have to be, if you have a, you know, a pre-existing struggle with your mental health, it doesn't have to be a deep opening of all of your deepest, darkest struggles. What it can be is just being able to say to someone, I'm actually having a bit of a bad day today. And whether that involves you wanting to talk more about it, whether that means I'm having a bad day today, would you be right to come over and, and have a cup of tea? Would you want to go for a walk? Do you want to do something else? So reaching out to peers who are going through the same same things as you, whether that's whether you're a, a student who's who's learning to play in that environment, or whether it's a, a pre-existing social circle, or whether it's someone who's already in a supportive role, like a teacher who will understand the, the struggles that you've been through and will hopefully able to give you a, a bit of reflection and a bit of advice in the, you know, in the challenges that you're facing at the moment. Yeah, that's really good. But also, I suppose, if you're, if you're standing in a practice room on your own, you've been there for a, for a while and you are having a really bad day, it's also good to, to recognise that yourself, saying, look, I'm having a really bad day, let's go and do something else rather than hammering at this whatever it is that you're doing and sort of digging a deeper hole yeah I think you know, a, a phrase that I've used before is practice doesn't make perfect practice makes permanent so if the practice that you're doing is in that negative self-critical frame of mind and all you're doing is reinforcing each time you play a passage that I'm getting this wrong I'm bad at the flute all that you're doing is making permanent that association that you have with that passage and if you do it over a really extended 
frame of time, what you're doing is you're making that personal self-critical association with the activity of playing the flute. So if in your practice you're noticing that you are associating, you're having this conditioning between your self-critical internal voice and playing the flute, move yourself out of that space, even for five minutes, so that when you next go back to practice, the association that you're making is positive. You play that passage well, you're thinking to yourself, I am a good flute player, I am good at this, I am enjoying this. So that when you're practicing, the thing that you're making permanent is not a negative association, but a positive association. Okay, that's great, Joe. Now, um, my my support networks, I, I chat to my colleagues. Um, I love talking to uh, my great friend Ian Clark. We can talk about flutes all day, and it's really good to sort of uh, discuss various topics with him and get things sorted out in my head. Um, but also I have a, a social media support group for my many ears, which I have, my problem with my inner ear. And it's, for, for me, that's good, that support group on social media, because it helps me know what's normal and helps me uh, discuss things with people about their coping strategies, etc. But there are problems, though, aren't there, about getting bad advice from social media, because everybody has an opinion. What are your thoughts on social media? So social media can be a, a fantastic tool for connecting for having that social network and that support network which we were talking about earlier but I think it is incredibly important to realize that social media can also be quite detrimental to our mental health I mean as we've seen recently in the media social media heads having to respond to you know authority over content on their platforms uh, to worsening mental health and even in the worst case of scenarios as we had with that um really tragic case of the young girl with Instagram to the degree of worsening your mental health to the point of, of suicide. So I think it's really important not to underestimate the risks of relying on social media as an arbiter of what is normal, what is appropriate, and even what's representative of day-to-day -day life. Uh, I imagine there is a huge preponderance of performers, musicians and otherwise, who will only post on a social media account the positive aspects of, of their careers. You know, Whether it's a gig that went well, whether it's a lifestyle or a salary, or whether it's even an association that they have with themselves, with their own mental health and with their practicing that they have. It's important not to look to that as a representative part of, of, of musicianhood or even being a performer. Um, and one of the risks of social media is that we can see a, a wealth of people who seem to be doing incredibly well, which can make ourselves feel very isolated. Like, we are the only people who are struggling. We're the only people who are not having a good day. We're the only people who've had a, a bad gig or you know, a, a rough spate with practice or that think that we're not, not great performers. Uh, so social media, while being fabulous for support networks and socialising also can very much skew our opinion of, of how we're meant to be doing and especially talking about what's normal. Anyone who is having a, a, an incredibly challenging time with their mental health might struggle and think that it's normal to be happy whereas in actual fact most people probably don't spend the majority of their time feeling happy. So if the only image that you see of people is from a social media window, assuming that 100% of the time the rest of the world is feeling absolutely on cloud nine, when in actual fact what you're feeling most of the time is incredibly low, you might start to think that you're not normal. Yeah, that's interesting. So social media, media could promote poor mental health if you're not careful about how you use it. I mean, I've certainly noticed that a lot of people sort of are always promoting how great a concert's been, how wonderful their, their students are, uh, what a wonderful life they're having. And um, we have no idea if it's actually true. And it's from their perception, not from anybody else. So I always think that you, you can't always emulate your heroes or your social media friends. And someone's success story is not necessarily reality. So definitely you have to be really, really careful. Um, and I suppose we... These days, solo success is um, depends a lot on the brand that you create. And that's often through social media. 
where you have to market yourself. I suppose that's why people are starting to sort of up how well they're doing and how great everything is. So we just need to keep a little bit of, have a little bit of a reality check, don't we? I suppose we are touching on a bit of a, a double-edged sword there in, in that you're right, in order to create, a, from a marketing perspective, in order to create a successful brand, the image that you have to promote has to be almost uniformly positive. And yet the catch of that wealth of uniformly positive brands is that for everyone else, that's the only image that they see and that's not representative. So the cost of good marketing is creating an environment where we risk worsening other people's mental health. It's a, it's a, it's a challenging issue. Yeah, it is. Burnout is now termed as an occupational phenomenon and not classified as a medical condition. Yeah, burnout, I think, is something that we've been uh, hearing about a lot more recently. It's certainly been a topic that's become easier to, to talk about and something which has certainly garnered a lot more attention uh, in the media. Um, I think a lot of people may have heard the phrase uh, before but might not have had uh, a comfortable understanding of, of what it involved. Uh, and the way to really uh, think about it is it is the long-term uh, consequence of stress. So stress is a is an acute uh, experience. You feel stressed in a uh, in a moment or or about an event, uh, and burnout is what happens uh, when the amount of stress that you're experiencing along a long period of time uh, is more uh, than you're able to recover from, and this can be uh, a result of of work stress, as in the uh, definition before, uh, or even chronic stress in your in your personal life as well, whether that's from a, a financial point of view, relationships, housing. Uh, or many other issues. It's not a sign that you're you're ill uh, or that there's something wrong with you. It is an expected response when your emotional reserve is depleted. It is a normal human reaction. So there is a difference between burnout and stress. Very much so. I mean, a way to uh, to think about it is your emotional reserves are a bit like a fuel tank, uh, and we all have an ability to cope uh, with stress and hardship and and with emotionally difficult situations. Um, whether that's you know something very stressful or even just the the background stress of, of turning up to work and and having to perform uh, to a high level, and all of those activities will deplete that fuel tank a little bit, uh, and all of us will have ways of of refilling that tank. Whether it's you know an evening off, having a weekend, socialising, or having hobbies that you enjoy, burnout is what happens when over a long period of time you are not filling up as much as you are burning that fuel. And when that tank is empty, when you have no emotional uh, reserves left, that is when we become burnt out. Okay, so it's a bit like you can get to the point where it can feel like no matter how hard you try, you're not getting anywhere, which is exhausting as if you're trying to swim against the current. Yeah, that feeling of, uh, of hopelessness and the feeling that things have become absolutely overwhelming is, is classic. And it doesn't even need to be uh, something which you would have considered overwhelming before. One of the first signs for a lot of people is when tasks which they used to accomplish on a daily basis suddenly feel uh, insurmountable, something that they, they can't even begin to tackle. So it can creep up on you without you sort of realising? Yeah, very much so. And it's important to be able to recognise um, the signs of, of burnout. I mean, and sometimes it, it might not be overly obvious. I mean, an easy way to... Uh, to divide up those those signs is into four areas. So the first one I'd think about is high activation symptoms, and what I mean by that is uh, symptoms which involve you know more energy than you would normally, and that would be irritability, uh, feeling frustrated or feeling restless, feeling unable to sit still, or even losing your temper and feeling quite angry with people. The second area would be the lower activation or inactivation area, so that would be feeling fatigued, feeling tired all the time having a very low mood or even feeling tearful, uh, and you might well notice this in a low appetite or in difficulty sleeping. And also specifically, that feeling of being overwhelmed, uh, which we'd mentioned just before, even for small things. The third area would be bad coping mechanisms. So a lot of people can find themselves drinking or smoking more uh, than they used to, or even finding themselves driven uh, to other substances to help them cope. And the fourth area is a little bit of a can be a little bit of a surprise to, to some people but probably not to all and that's in the sense of physical symptoms so people will start to notice things like 
headaches, uh, tummy upsets, um, that again, that struggle to sleep, uh, but also more aches and pains than you may normally have uh, and a feeling that they are harder to cope with. Wow, so there's quite a few symptoms could be there, which could be due to, to other things as well, of course. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But when we're, when we're thinking about musicians mm -hmm. and the fact that, um, you know, you're, you practice for uh, long hours uh, alone and you often have um, a lack of balance in your everyday life um, or your family life, um, a lack of social life. So going back to my first two years at college, I never went out for the first two years. I just, I worked so hard. I was, you know, got up early, practiced six hours a day, did, went to my lectures and, and uh, classes. And uh, it's, it's interesting how today it's, certainly when we're talking now about mental health, it's talked about far more easily and more readily. Um, I was noticing that... Um, social media we've talked before about social media and mm -hmm. the damage it can have on us sometimes social media can elevate some musicians too quickly um, and then they've got the stress and the pressure of having to stay there but also maybe some of those music musicians shouldn't have been elevated to that position at that particular time so it's a case of they've not quite achieved what they needed to achieve in order to have that status and that creates too much emphasis on sort of their image sometimes rather than their skill there just seems to be so much pressure to succeed rather than giving people time to find their niche and of course one of the big causes of our feelings of burnout at all levels of performance is a feeling that your current standard or your current performance is not where it should be and that sense of should is often not representative of, of truth or is often not a not an accurate statement uh, but is a, a perception of a higher standard of performance which is is not being met uh, and it often really doesn't reflect the quality of the work that's being produced by an individual uh, but more so the expectation from others or even from an overly critical self uh, compared to what's actually being given. Absolutely Joe that's really interesting um, but also I was thinking that um, Many musicians develop their careers from a, a passionate hobby, which is what I did. My hobby became my job. Um, but there are also those players who've been pushed into playing and practising by parents from an early age before they themselves can work out whether it's going to be a passion or not. And that can create burnout. I know there have been a lot of students at the specialist music schools and junior schools and at the colleges that have left very early on because of burnout? I, I suppose there are uh, there are two things in there. Uh, if you've, for any performer who takes something which was a, a passionate hobby and then it then has to become a, a craft or a, or a job, especially if it's a way of earning money, uh, you will have a different relationship uh, with something which used to bring you joy. And taking yourself back to a place where it is a provider of joy as opposed to a necessity uh, can really be be quite a challenge for a, a lot of people. I wish it was easy. Yeah, that would be great, wouldn't it? Um, and I suppose when you when you're feeling burnt out, especially a lot of the things which you uh, might have previously derived joy from can seem insurmountable. I mean, a, a common example in in performances they may have, you know, quite a, a large undertaking. So say a, a, a complex orchestral piece or a sonata, and when you or at the beginning of that process and when you're looking at that wealth of work that you have to accomplish, finding a starting point or finding the ability to uh, to start, you know, sort of like looking at a, an empty book when you want to try and write a novel, that first sentence or even in, in a musical context, that first phrase can be a really difficult uh, step to take. Yeah, I, I wish we could... Um find a way of allowing people to go back and play like they did when they were younger with that feeling of joy you were talking about. It's just remind me of, of, of a golf story. And of course, I've got to bring in a golf story, Joe, because um, I get them in most of these podcasts. I read something recently about Rory McIlroy, who's number two in the world. And he, he's all last year, he was having terrible problems putting. And then someone 
suggested to him that he should go and putt like he did when he was a little boy, where he'd just get on the putting green and just hit the ball and just go with a feel. Suddenly his putting became better. So we need to find the sort of the, the musical equivalent of this, that we can pick up our instruments and play as if we were just like improvising or just playing for fun and, and find that joy. Absolutely. And if you're in that early stage uh, of burnout where the main thing that you're struggling with is that lack of drive and, and that lack of motivation, finding the things that, that bring you joy in your work is, is one of the most important first steps that you can take. I know we talked earlier about activities that can you know, drain you of that emotional reserve and activities that can refill that emotional reserve. And if you can find things within your flute playing and within your practice which can refill that emotional reserve, that is the most important first step to try and take if you're, if you're still at that stage. An example might be, you know, to go back to that, uh, that analogy of you know, a complex piece that you've just started to try and, uh, to try and practice and uh, that you're going to have to perform eventually, looking through it and finding a phrase or a bar, the most tiny segment which does bring you joy that you find a sense of, of beauty and, and happiness and purpose in and saying to yourself, I'm, I'm just going to do that. And the moment you start to take those miniature steps and bring your focus, really narrow it down into those tiny aspects that bring you joy, the next step becomes that much easier. So it's like it's managing your expectations and it's it's taking very very small steps. Mm. So for me if I used to go if I wanted to sort of play something that that gave me great joy I'd go and play some Nestor Torres pieces mm. or I'd go and play some Mike Moa pieces you know the uh, the postcard uh, what was it? Musical postcards. Yes, musical postcards. I used to love that. Um, <laughs> that will always give me give me joy. You know, something something completely different to get me excited about uh, flute and playing again before I might move on to something else. And if you're in a place where uh, an entire piece is something that you can turn to uh, in your repertoire to make you happy about playing, that's that's fantastic. But if you're at a point where even a whole piece might seem insurmountable. Um, or, or overwhelming, that's when you've got to use this, this trick of narrowing your focus. When the, you know, the mountain seems too much to climb, you've just got to look at the, the next step in front of you. And if you can find in that narrowed focus, in those small spaces, and like I said, if it's just a bar or a phrase, that's enough for that first step. Hmm. Okay, so I'm thinking of, of what um, symptoms for a musician would might show up if they were suffering from burnout. For example, it might be someone who might not practice very much anymore um, or who might not warm up before performances um, or has a, uh, an air of not really, not really caring or not being interested um, or maybe not doing different types of work they might have done before, like... Uh, recitals or concerto appearances um, and might even go as far as you know always having a drink before going on stage. Mm -hmm. Well I think it's going to be helpful to bring us back to what I spoke about earlier those those four areas of symptoms and, and put them in a in the context of, of someone who is a performer. So the symptoms that I mentioned earlier might uh, might be significant for of a more more severe type of burnout um, and some of the people listening might not have found areas in that in which they can identify. Conversely, it may well be that they can identify very well. But to think about, for example, the, the high activation symptoms. So I talked about anger and, uh, and irritation. It may well be that you're finding during your practice uh, that at moments where you struggle, you are becoming intensely self-critical. You're finding yourself... Um, very angry at yourself for having made mistakes, uh, wrong notes, poor phrasing. Um, and it may be that critical voice is becoming more and more severe. Uh, and it may well be you that's noticed it, or it may well be friends or, or colleagues that point it out. Uh, second be the, the low activation areas. And I really do think that the lack of motivation or loss of motivation is probably the first thing that people will notice, that lack of drive to, um, to actually play. Um, and it may well be that that's the only symptom of, of low activation that a lot of people have, that, that all of a sudden it is not an activity that, that brings any joy uh, or that the idea of picking up your flute and starting to play is not something that you can 
that you can envisage. Um, feeling overwhelmed, uh, even when uh, tasked with doing small things. And you know, at, at times it may well be that even that example I gave of, of playing a phrase or a bar, that even that feels overwhelming. Uh, and at which point it, it might be time to think about taking a, a short break and, and stopping that a practice session before it becomes uh, more harmful than uh, than beneficial. Yes, I, mean, I was just thinking then that, that how do we how do we move this on to saying what can people do on a practical level? Hmm. Because there's no obviously this sounds like there's going to be no simple answer here. It's a mixture of things, isn't it? Absolutely. And when I see people for burnout in my professional uh, life the answer is always very personalised. There's rarely a, a one-size-fix-all solution, but I can absolutely talk through uh, the process that I go through for finding solutions when people are burnt out. So the first step is is absolutely to recognise that you're being burnt out, uh, and that is a you know a process of of reflecting and, and thinking. You know, is this like acknowledgement of it? Absolutely. And you know, if you're finding yourself having you know this complete lack of motivation, feeling angry at yourself, having this low mood, then it's related to this chronic application of stress. And the stress itself doesn't have to be high stress. It's just the fact that that stress is more than you can manage over a long period of time. So recognising that burnout is a factor is the first step. The second stage is, as well as acknowledging it to yourself, can be talking about it. Now, it may well be that you have a, a circle of friends or family um, that you can talk to about this, but acknowledging to yourself that it's it's okay to not be okay and that you're struggling a bit, can even that, if you're at an early stage of burnout, can help slip the balance uh, and can mean that you start engaging more in a you know, in your social life, that your friends start looking out for you a bit so more. So you you actively encourage support, Absolutely. social support. And it, for, for people to identify their own support networks. Um, and linked into that is, the, is this third stage, which is identifying what are the things which are burning up your reserves and what are the things which are replenishing your emotional reserves. Now... If the thing that is burning up your reserves is something that you can that you can stop, that's that's reasonably straightforward. So it may well be um, that you know there's a relational aspect. It may well be that there's something which you can uh, that you can give up, which is which is helpful. But I think for most people, the cause of their burnout is often their job or their uh, something that used to be their passion, and giving it up isn't really an option. Um, so finding the moments. Uh, in that job or finding the moments in your playing and in your practice uh, which stop you from feeling your reserves are uh, depleted or even can can replenish them um, is really important. And on the note of replenishing reserves, it's also about identifying other areas in your personal life which do make you feel better. For a lot of people that, you know, that might be a hobby uh, or it may even just be spending time at home and, and reading a book. And it's it, often it is our hobby though that we're absolutely. doing. So having so i one of the things i probably draw people's attention to is the is the last podcast chat that i did to you where i spoke at length about behavioral activation which is the process that you can go through for identifying you know like your musical repertoire a repertoire of, of behaviors and activities which make you feel better which replenish your emotional reserves and that last podcast that process of of creating that repertoire of activities is is the thing that I would uh, I would recommend to people uh, if they're struggling to identify things which uh, which make them feel better. I suppose you could actually even start with very simple things like sleep m more, eat better, take some exercise, um, things like that. What do you think? Well, absolutely. So, I I suppose you know sleeping better is is challenging uh, and um, and often poor sleep is. Is, is one of the things which which plagues a lot of people in in my clinic and is one of the hardest things to to remedy um, and I think it's also important to mention that there may well be people uh, people listening who are at a, a stage of burnout where they're not even able to complete this task where this process of identifying things which are emotionally depleting or, or refilling in itself is is overwhelming um, and if you are struggling to talk and, and struggling to uh, to even go through this it's important to be aware that there are a lot of resources out there uh, which are incredibly helpful and the ones that I'll give a quick mention to um, are so for everyone there is a website called mood juice and that's worth a quick google um, which is uh, goes through a very helpful uh, 
a series of coping mechanisms which people might find beneficial. Um, for any uh, any men who are listening, uh, there is a website called the Campaign Against Living Miserably. Uh, the acronym is CALM, and that's worth a read through. And for anyone who's under 25, uh, there is a website called The Mix, or again, uh, worth a Google, uh, which can come through some um, helpful tactics. If you don't feel that those are suited to you or that those would be beneficial, it's important to be aware that you can self-refer uh, to your local IAPT service, so I-A-P-T, again that'll be specific to your area and, and, and worth a search, uh, or you can talk to your GP uh, if you're feeling that these things are, are getting too much for you. Well that's great advice Joe. Uh, something for all of us there, and although there are many people listening who may not feel as if they have suffer from burnout or stress, Hopefully this might go some way to helping you in the future. Absolutely. And what's really important to recognise is you do not have to reach a threshold of being ill enough uh, to seek help um, or ill enough to benefit from any of these techniques. Even if the only thing that you can recognise yourself struggling with is a feeling of a loss of, of motivation, you know, by all means, look at these resources, use these techniques uh, that we've talked about, um, because it's it's never too soon to start making positive changes, especially if they're helpful. Uh, and always reach out to friends and colleagues if you're worried that they might be struggling, and offer you know bits of help and, and these bits of advice, especially uh, if they've helped you. There seems to be a great deal that I can talk about in relation to self-doubt, but not so much about self-belief. But having had a long career, I can safely say that I'm an expert in both. State of mind is obviously an important factor. I thrive on positive thoughts and a positive mindset. Often listening to an uplifting piece of music is all that's needed. So with that thought in mind, let's have a listen. was Purcell's Hornpipe. Short, simple, fun, lively, bright, inspiring. A perfect way to help positivity. Self-belief is a state of mind where you have the confidence in your own abilities. It also enables you to act positively, move forwards and helps you forget any insecurity that you might have. We can all learn self-belief. Problem with life as we get older is that it also teaches us to doubt our abilities. And these negative thoughts invade our heads like unwelcome guests that you can't get rid of. Thoughts such as, I can't do this, I can't learn this, I'm not good enough, I'm not getting any better, there are so many people better than me, I'll never be successful, I'll never get a job. The list goes on and on. The strange thing is, if you do want to progress and achieve, one of the first things that you need to do is to stop telling yourself that you can't or stop thinking about all the other players that are better than you. It's a fact of life that there will always be players much better than you, and also many players much worse. Don't waste your precious time thinking about them. Concentrate on your own path and your own journey. When you have self-belief, problems do not seem as large. Your thinking is clearer, your approach is clearer. You can make mistakes and you're able to see them as such and move on. This clear thinking promotes your creativity, whereas self-doubt stifles it. Young players don't tend to struggle with doubt. They haven't developed that type of thinking. Situations that might fill an adult player with doubt don't affect the younger ones. Maybe we need to think back to our early stages of learning and try and recreate that state of not worrying about outcomes. Easy to say, I know, but hard to do. 
Now we all experience self-belief and doubt, but it's learning how to deal with it that's important for our continued development and positive state of mind. Occasionally, self-doubt can be a good thing because we have recognised that something isn't quite right and so then we will ask ourselves the pertinent questions to help us improve. Being unaware of problems or level of ability can be detrimental as much as self-doubt. It's finding the right balance for all of us. So what can we do on a practical level? I'm a great believer in visualisation. Before a concert, I use visualisation in my practice. I imagine I'm warming up, walking on the stage, tuning up, introducing myself to the audience and then performing. This gets me into the right mindset. And then when I'm in the reality of the concert, it feels comfortable, recognisable. I've practiced the process or routine and I keep my routine. So routine is key to successful performance. Write down a list of your strengths and what you do well. Ignore any negative thoughts. Control your inner voice. Talk to yourself about positives. Remember the positive comments from teachers, family and friends. Be prepared. By that I'm talking about practice. Anything you can't play in practice will not miraculously be playable in a performance. Beware in your practice of all the things you do well. It could be a varied tone, clean technique, clear articulation, controlled breathing, or a beautiful phrase. Don't forget all that you do well. Performance is transient. By that I mean it's not permanent. It lasts for a short time. If something doesn't go well in one performance, it doesn't follow that it will happen again. Give yourself praise and enjoy your accomplishments. Listen to inspiring performers or pieces that inspire you. Not necessarily a bright and sparkly piece like the Purcell we listen to. It could be a calming, reflective piece. With that thought in mind, let's have a listen. That was Gordon Jacobs' Cradle Song, 
calming, soothing and relaxing. Now I also like to read inspirational quotes to boost self-belief or self-worth. Here are a few of my favourites. Live the life of your dreams. When you start living the life of your dreams, there will always be obstacles, doubters, mistakes and setbacks along the way. But with hard work, perseverance and self-belief, there is no limit to what you can achieve. That was Roy Bennett, The Light in the Heart. Believe it can be done. When you believe something can be done, really believe, your mind will find the ways to do it. Believing a solution paves the way to solution. And that was David Swartz from The Magic of Thinking Big. Dare to dream. If you did not have the capability to make your wildest wishes come true, your mind would not have the capacity to conjure such ideas in the first place. There is no limitation on what you can potentially achieve, except for the limitation you choose to impose on your own imagination. What you believe to be possible will always come to pass, to the extent that you deem it possible. It really is as simple as that. That was Anton St. Martin. If you think you can, then you can. Do not invest time and money into yourself to have others completely destroy it. Both of those were by Stephen Richards. And finally, he licked his lips. Well, if you want my opinion, I don't, she said. I have my own. And that was Toni Morrison from Beloved. So I've been asked to talk a little bit on the topic of self-doubt. Now, this is a really broad-ranging topic and probably one which uh, I would hope everyone listening to can relate to. And I think this the subject of self-doubt, which can probably be really nicely formulated also into performance anxiety is something that not just professional performers but everyone will come across uh, as part of their day-to-day life. There's a reason that I bring up performance anxiety or anxiety in general uh, as a way of thinking about uh, self-doubt and that's because of the two main components of what makes up anxiety. Now I imagine uh, a lot of people listening will have a formulation in their own minds uh, of what anxiety means to them whether that's in a more generic sense like uh, worry or doubt as mentioned before or in a more specific context uh, like an example that you might think of of a recent moment where you had doubt or anxiety uh, about an event or maybe even a performance or even a social interaction that you've had recently. So the two components of anxiety are one that something is going to go badly or that there is going to be a negative event at some point in your future and two and this is the key component that you won't be able to cope with it. Now that second component is key because we might all think Uh, that bad things might happen, but if we're convinced that we're going to be able to manage this, that we're going to be able to weather that in a particular storm, then we're not going to have any anxiety. It is that second uh, component that we're not going to be able to manage uh, the impact of this negative event that we're sure is going to happen. That's what causes this anxiety, the the worry about what's going to happen, and even catastrophization, which is thinking about worse and worse things uh, that are going to happen as a result of this event. And I'm sure everyone that's listening can have a memory of a moment where they've explored every single what-if or every single bad thing that can possibly go wrong uh, with a, a big event that's coming up, whether that's a, a professional performance or or even something relatively minor, like practising or, or even preparing a meal. Now, you can, and many people have written entire books on the topic of coping with anxiety, social anxiety, performance anxiety, and there are the other variants of the topic. So obviously I'm not going to be able to go into huge volumes of depth about this here, uh, but what I would like to do is uh, go into a simple tool or a simple technique for trying to help minimise that worry, that self-doubt about an event or or about a skill or a technique that you might be practising. None of the techniques for managing this are instant fix, none of them are silver bullets. They do all require practice and a little bit of investment on on your part to really get the most out of them and to really make them work. Uh, The one that I want to talk about is based around a really key concept in cognitive behavioural therapy uh, and that is best emphasised by the quote, don't trust me, test me. And what that means is that whenever you go and see uh, a psychologist or a psychotherapist or even a good friend uh, when you want to talk about your self-doubt or anxiety, they're going to tell you that, that things are going to be okay and things aren't as bad as, as they seem, although likely in a more eloquent way. 
But the key message of that advice and the key message of that support is going to be that your anxieties and that your worries are likely not representative of the reality of what's going to happen, that things aren't going to go as badly as you think that they are. And when I say, don't trust me, test me, what I mean by that is, I want you to find a way of exploring uh, that anxiety so that you can see for yourself that things aren't going to go as badly as you have imagined that they will do. Now, if you're listening to this with a specific uh, piece-related anxiety, you may be thinking, oh, well, my worry is that I won't be able to play this well on the night of my performance, on the night of my gig. And you may listen to this advice and think to yourself, well, what you're doing is you're, is you're telling me what I should do is just go to the gig, play it, and see that it'll be fine. And you may quite rightly think that that's quite useless advice. So if worry and if anxiety and that self-doubt is your main obstacle, then what we have to do is try and find a stepwise way to getting you to that point. So say, for example, your worry is that you won't be able to get this particular phrase or this very difficult piece uh, or this, this very difficult uh, few bars out on the night of your performance. Then what might be helpful is thinking about, OK, well, what's going to represent that but in a, a less pressured, less anxiety-inducing state? So the first step may well be playing that particular part of a piece and recording it and then playing it back to yourself so that the only audience that's going to be hearing you is is you uh, seeing how you you feel recording yourself seeing how you feel listening to yourself play and realizing that things are actually going going quite all right the next step that you might be is once you feel comfortable with that stage is going to be playing to a small group of friends whether those are fellow performers fellow flutists or even family members and demonstrating to yourself that actually playing in front of a group or playing in front of an audience, things are all right. I can do this. I can get through this piece. And by creating that supportive environment, even if things do go wrong, even if you do slip up on a phrase or slip up on a bar, that you're able to manage this. So you're in an environment where you can cope and there isn't this catastrophic result. So going back to what we said earlier, that performance anxiety comes from two things. One, the worry that something bad is going to happen or that you're going to make a mistake. And two, that you're not going to be able to cope with it. So by putting yourself in these environments and putting yourself in these moments, you can see that A, things will quite likely go okay, that you will be able to perform at a level that you're comfortable with. And B, that even if something did go wrong, that you're able to cope with that. Now, that's just a really rough and ready example in the short space of time that we have. But the principles that we've gone over are going to be useful to anybody that's listening. And those are threefold. One is understanding that that doubt and that anxiety comes from that twofold process of worrying that something bad is going to happen and also worrying that you're not going to be able to cope with that bad event. The second is reflecting and thinking to yourself, OK, what is my specific worry or what is even a specific worry uh, that I can I can think about where I can formulate it in the concept of what is this specific event that I'm worried will happen and why am I worried that I'm not going to be able to cope if it goes badly uh, and the third step is trying to think about that stepwise process of okay so here's where I am now and at the end point is that specific event how can I break that down into moments which reflect that worry but is in a sort of a stepwise safe environment so if the worry is performance uh, at a concert can I a perform to myself then perform to friends or family and then perform to a slightly larger group in a way that I can prove to myself that that worry that that anxiety is not founded in truth or is not representative of how things are really going to go. Now, these tools are very generic, they're very broad, and when we use them in clinical practice, they're often incredibly personalized to the worry that's brought in. So if you're finding that you're struggling to apply this tool to your particular scenario, please send in your questions and send in your thoughts to Talking Flutes, and I'm gonna try and respond to as many as I can the next time I'm on, because if there is a worry that you have I guarantee you there will be other people listening that are going to have the same anxiety. And hopefully by solving that one will help many more people. Hopefully those ideas, the earlier quotes and the practical ideas I've mentioned will help you all develop feelings of self-belief. That positive mindset will assist you not only achieve your goals, but also help your overall enjoyment of playing your flutes, regardless of the difficulties or obstacles. There were so many important subjects in that podcast, and so please do send in any questions you may have for Claire or Dr. Joe to flutepodcasts at gmail.com or via our dedicated Instagram and Facebook pages at Talking Flutes. Thank you so much for listening. Until next week, when I'm visiting Dublin to speak with the brilliant flute player and Professor William Dowdle about the haunting piece Syrinx.
So may you have a musically fulfilling week ahead and may your low C resonate. Goodbye. Talking Flutes and Talking Flutes Extra are podcast productions by the Trevor James Flute Company. For more information, visit trevorjamesflutes.com.